0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Drew Gronwald, thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm really excited to talk with you today and learn from you. So I wanna jump right in. Can you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your role at the University of Michigan and where your research focuses.
1: Sure, Erica. So my name is Drew Bernawald, as you said. I'm an associate professor based here in the School for Environment and Sustainability. Um, But I do like to keep my fingers in a few other pies, so to speak, across campus. I also have an adjunct position in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, as well as an adjunct appointment in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences. And I take those positions very seriously. And I view them sort of complementing what we try to do here back at SEAS in the School for Environment and Sustainability, which is to take on a multidisciplinary approach to big picture environmental problems Um, and so to answer the second part of your question a lot of the research that that i and my group are doing right now is understanding water level variability on large lake systems and how both climate change and direct anthropogenic impacts can affect the long term what we call the water balance of lake systems and ultimately water levels. Most of that work, Erica, is being done here on the Great Lakes right in our backyard, but we extend a lot of our work to other lake systems around the world, including some of the African lakes. And We can talk about that later if you'd like.
0: I'd love to jump in to talk about the Great Lakes system, uh, you know, I've, I've been lucky to speak with you about this before, and I find this really interesting. Can you just elaborate a little bit on why it's important to focus research on the Great Lakes freshwater system specifically?
1: Yeah, I can give you sort of um, three primary reasons. There are probably hundreds of reasons, depending on who you talk to and where you live and whether you're um, part of an indigenous community or you're in Canada or the United States But you know, three reasons that that pop out. First and foremost, in terms of from a global freshwater perspective, and Eric, you've probably heard me say this before, but for the audience, I'll I'll repeat it again. Um, The the vast majority of Earth's fresh surface water is stored in lakes. That's that's our storage mechanism on the surface. And um, what I like to point out is many people know the Great Lakes hold about 20% of all that fresh surface water. Um, But the other point we've been making recently is that 80%. Of all of the Earth's fresh, unfrozen surface water is in just 10 large lakes across the Earth, including the Great Lakes. So, from a global water abundance and availability perspective, you need to look to lakes. And if we can understand how water moves through and is stored in the Great Lakes, we'll have a really strong ability and basis for understanding how that works on other large lake systems. And ultimately, the vast majority of Earth's fresh surface water. So number one, global water scarcity and abundance. Number two has to do with the interactions with the coastline. The Great Lakes, if you look at their coastline and you sort of add up all the miles or kilometers, it's a vast coastline, thousands of miles of of coastline. And that's one of the primary media, like mediums or media, through which we interact with the lakes. A lot of people like to live on the coastline. Um, And so as water levels change, it, whether it's on short-term timescales in response to storms or longer-term timescales, it, it, it has a direct impact on not only humans' interaction with the lakes through the coastline, but also the interaction of ecosystems through the coastline. So, coastlines. So, first, water abundance and scarcity on a global scale. Number two, coastlines. And number three, it's probably important to point out the role that the Great Lakes play in, in the regional and national economy. Um, a lot of local economists have sort of come up with this number that the Great Lakes have an economy of something close to 6 trillion and that if the Great Lakes were their own country, so if you pulled together the Canadian provinces and the eight states, you'd have the third largest economy in the world. And a lot of that is based on the, the resources that the Great Lakes provide for us, one of which is shipping and, um, the commercial shipping industry, you know, we all see those, those vessels crisscrossing the Great Lakes. Their ability to do their jobs is entirely dependent on the water levels of the Great Lakes. Um, their, their capacity to ship goods and, and cargo uh, depends directly on water levels, particularly in narrow and shallow portions of the Great Lakes. There's also an interesting story uh, regarding shipping related to ice cover, but we can talk about that further down the road. So those are the big three, Erica, that I would, that I would offer.
0: Thank you so much. Can you provide a few examples um, on how you conduct this research or how do you develop models? How are you investigating all of this and learning this information?
1: Yeah. So the, what we end up doing is we develop um, a, lot of, a lot of what I would call modeling tools. And when I say modeling tools, I'm talking primarily about computer programs that we write that develop simulations of how water flows through the Great Lakes you know, it's very hard to set up like a laboratory experiment for the Great Lakes. Um, the this, this scale is just so vast that really the best thing we can do is set up these computer models. But Erica, well, I think what the audience might find interesting is in order to develop a computer model of a large environmental system, you have to have data to, about the system. And so I would say even before you start talking about our software and the models that we develop, the most important thing we have In the Great Lakes, for understanding them and doing our research and any other research, is a long what I will call foundational historical record. So let me put it a little bit differently. Um, Federal agencies in the region have been collecting water level on data on the Great Lakes all the way back to the mid 1800s. It's one of the longest and most continuous records of any large freshwater system on Earth, and that is the foundation, Erica. And so what we do is we then blend historical water level data. With other data that's available on things like precipitation or evaporation or the amount of water flowing into the lakes through rivers and streams, Erica, the vast majority of that information is collected by federal agencies like the United States Geological Survey or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or even the Army Corps of Engineers. And the fact that that data is more or less readily available and that we can pull it into our models is one of the key things that that we rely on in our research.
0: How do you use this information to help plan for the future? Obviously, you study the impact that fluctuating water levels can have on Michigan communities, as you talked about the coastline, and so how, how do you use that to try and determine what's going to happen? I'm sure it's hard to figure out what
1: happens with the water levels. Yeah, um, it can be a little bit tricky just because um, the lakes, and this is an indirect answer to your question, but it's worth mentioning for, for the audience, you know, the lakes are interconnected, right? So as water flows through the system, um, there's this sort of complicated feedback mechanism as water flows from Superior into Michigan-Huron and from Michigan-Huron into Erie. And you can imagine trying to even do like an Excel spreadsheet to, to track the water. It's, it's not easy. To answer your question, though, you know, how do we use this information to, to help? Um, there's, there are a variety of, of approaches and a lot of The work is done in partnership with federal agencies but to give you sort of two perspectives or, or angles on this one way erica is by looking into the past and developing a clear understanding of why water levels changed in a way that we saw them change to be more specific if we see water levels go down over a certain time period just like we did in the late 1990s water levels dropped dramatically it is absolutely critical for politicians for government agencies and for the citizens and, and the public to understand why water levels went down. If people believe that water levels went down because there was increased use or because water was being shipped to another part of the world, that will have a dramatic impact on policy decisions, on voting, on people's actions. But if people come to understand that that decline in the past was due to increased evaporation and led to lower ice cover on higher surface water temperatures, That's a completely different understanding of the system, and I believe leads to a different set of actions and a response. So understanding the past is critical to people's relationship with the lakes and how they move forward. The second part, Erica, is is developing forecasts. And when I say forecasts, I'm talking about predictions of water levels over different time periods, ranging from weeks to months, years, and even decades. Here's the key point. Our ability to understand the relationship between things like evaporation or water demand or changes in precipitation and water levels directly affects our ability to predict those relationships into the future. So the second thing we do is help develop forecasts for people to make planning decisions moving into the future. And that depends on our understanding of the past.
0: And you you started to talk about, in a response to one of my other questions, how the water variability translates into economics and into policy practice and how important it is for you know policymakers and elected officials to know. can you just elaborate a little bit on that importance and and the you know that impact and what it means to Michigan residents and to Michigan elected officials when the water levels are
1: changing? So I don't have exact numbers um, on you know, every coastline activity and how every coastline activity propagates into that $6 trillion economy. But some examples include, you know, the recreational boating and the recreational fishing industry, right? Two incredible examples of how um, we use the Great Lakes and how water levels uh, can both affect the economy and affect that industry. So for example, when, when water levels get really, really high, I know that a lot of boaters and marinas have trouble, they get flooded, they can lose damage to their docks, boats can get lost, Similarly, when water levels are low, um, boaters can not be able to even access their vessels, let alone coves and embayments that get isolated when water levels are low. So the the recreational boating and recreational fishing industry is a great example. But there are also examples from large industrial scale facilities. Um, There are a lot of facilities around the Great Lakes that use water, well, first of all, for drinking water, right? There are drinking water intake facilities, but there are also facilities that use um, the lakes for cooling water. Most of the nuclear power facilities along the Great Lakes use lake water intakes for cooling water, and they are very sensitive to extreme fluctuations in water levels. In fact, if water levels got extremely low, some of those intakes could have a hard time pulling in water and ultimately providing the cooling that they need at those facilities. So there, are, those are just a couple examples of extremes of how the, the water level variability is tied to these activities and ultimately into the overall economy.
0: And I know you mentioned earlier that there are other lakes and other freshwater systems that you're looking at outside of the Great Lakes. Are there any of those that you want to mention or anything that you're learning from the Great Lakes that applies to any of these other settings or vice versa?
1: Yeah, absolutely, Erica. So um, some of the work we've done, I was in Africa a couple of years ago working on Lake Malawi and also uh, a lake nearby there called Lake Chilwa. And these lakes are critical for countries like Malawi um, and other countries in the region because they provide two important things. One is protein. Um, They have a lot of fish. Uh, The other thing is they serve as a source of hydropower. And um, providing power continuity in these parts of the world is critical um, toward providing a high quality of life. So, um i I'll, I'll leave you I know mean, I'll, I'll pass along two things that we will learn. One is that from a from a fundamental perspective, understanding lake water levels in some ways is relatively simple. Um, you know, water comes in, water goes out, whatever difference is turns into water levels going up and down. Um, and we've been able to translate a lot of the tools, some of the computer models and data sets we've developed, to help solve problems there. The challenge, Erica, though comes with the two factors I mentioned earlier on. When we try to understand the impacts of climate change and anthropogenic activity or human activity on these systems, it becomes a real challenge. And I'll, I'll give you just a couple of detailed examples within those one is in order to understand how climate change is affecting a region, we need to understand these sort of complex air circulation patterns of a region. For us, it's the jet stream, but it's also things like the Arctic polar vortex. Well, in Eastern Africa, we have similar air circulation patterns that either bring moisture into the region suddenly or don't. That's a challenge, Erica, in any part of the world, understanding how global climate change is affecting regional air circulation patterns and ultimately the water balance of these lakes. Um, so that's that's one particular thing that we found um, uh, challenging. And then the other thing is the anthropogenic impact. Um, there are regions where people are using water extensively for irrigation. One of the um, problems or challenges that we face uh, in understanding East African lakes has to do with land use, land cover change and deforestation. So changing the land surface draining into these lakes can dramatically change the amount of runoff, the amount of evapotranspiration uh, and getting data sets and information that accurately represent what humans are doing across those landscapes is hard.
0: We've been lucky to speak with you several times through the Public Engagement Impact Initiative over the past few years through Michigan Minds through the Wolverine Caucus. So I want to ask this next question with that in mind. As you continue this work year after year, do you see increased changes or changes in the environmental tolerance for variability or just different impacts from like climate change and human activity, like you said, is how has it been evolving?
1: Yeah, there's a great, a great question, Erica. I, I, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about this, um, but it sounds like the question sort of has two elements to it, you know, what have we seen in terms of changes in the environmental system itself? Um, and what have we seen in terms of changes in, in human behavior? Um, in response to that, are people surprised when we have these changes or, or do they, uh, we get it. We know the Great Lakes now. I would say um, in terms of you know changes over the past 10 years, Erica, I believe that there has been a profound change. The research that, that, that I and my students have done suggests that um, there is a significant increase in the variability of some of these water balance components, most notably evaporation over the past 20 years. Evaporation rates have changed dramatically from or sort of two to five-year periods. Um, if you think back to the Arctic polar vortex deformation, right? When, that, when we have an Arctic polar vortex, evaporation slows down. When lake, when lake temperatures get high, evaporation goes back up again. So I want to point out that variability. Part of that, Erica, is this tremendous surge in precipitation we had over the past five to ten years as well. It was the wettest decade on record. For much of central North America and for the Great Lakes. So, so we've definitely been seeing a new pattern of variability within the Great Lakes Um, in terms of humans ability to sort of understand or be surprised by that, I have to say that I'll start off with a positive, but then I'll be maybe a little bit more pragmatic. I do believe that the research that that we've been doing and that federal agencies have been doing for years and that work you've been doing, Erica, and, and other educational programs like the Sea Grant are doing a great job educating people about coastal water levels, coastal water level variability. And I think that's having an impact. However, I do also believe that people's ability to forget the past and not look back at the historical record where they make decisions is a little bit upsetting, um, especially when we have this very long historical water level record right before us. So I would like to see people take a look at, at the data we have and the water level record to understand that water levels go up and go down quite dramatically periodically and are likely to continue doing so in the future.
0: So we're we're running short on time, and one of these times I'm going to, to book enough time so that I can ask all of my questions, but I want to be cognizant of how incredibly busy you are right now. Is there anything else that you want to share or talk about that's really important?
1: Yeah, Erica, I would love to take this opportunity to sort of pass on two key points. The first has to do with the coastline, and I'm becoming increasingly convinced, Erica, that we need to have serious discussions in the public realm about the extent to which the Great Lakes coastline should be part of the public domain. Um, We have a huge socioeconomic discrepancy in who owns and interacts with and makes decisions about the coastline. And I I don't think it's okay, particularly from a long-term sustainability perspective. A broader sector of the public needs to have access to the Great Lakes coastline. and needs to be involved in decisions about how they're managed and where people can build homes, where commerce can establish themselves. So that's, I think we need to have a very healthy, and forward-thinking dialogue about that problem. The second point, especially related to Earth Day, is we need to be having some long-term decisions about the future of the Great Lakes on multi-decadal timescales. Eric, I think you know this, and I think most of the audience knows, that we have an increasing gradient, a strong gradient or discrepancy in water surplus and water scarcity in this country. The arid Southwest is hot, dry, on fire and losing water at an alarming rate. It is absolutely critical that we as a region have a clear understanding of what role the Great Lakes is going to play in both national, United States, binational, uh, and including indigenous communities, water scarcity and water abundance over the next 20, 40 years so we can make good, sustainable decisions and not be caught off guard if a crisis occurs.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that and all of this information. I learned so much each time we speak with you. I greatly appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Grunewald. Thank you.
1: Eric, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag umichimpact.